It's the strangest places where you'll find Christmas. It's not that I don't pay attention to the traditional passages, because I do, and you do as well. You can't find more beautiful words and thoughts than Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. We'll be reading those during the Christmas season, no doubt. You find a little uh, different perspective with Matthew's version. It's also in his second chapter. For if it weren't for Matthew, we wouldn't know anything about uh, three kings, three wise men. We wouldn't know anything about a sick ruler named Herod the Great who sought to wipe out the entire population of baby boys in Bethlehem. And it's in a little Old Testament book. It's only four chapters in length. It's a a passage and a story that captivates many people because of its simplicity, because of its beauty. And it's here that I think we find Christmas as well. It's the story of Ruth. Ruth, a Moabitess, which means a non-Jew, a Gentile, a pagan, a heathen in the minds of Jewish people. If you don't know the story, let me just, capt- uh, just captivate you with it and summarize it just briefly. For the story tells us that a certain woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech left their home, which was Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? And they traveled across the area that would border the Dead Sea and traveled east to the land of Moab. And they did this purely for survival reasons. Crops were bad. Famine was rampant in the area of Israel during their lifetime. And they knew the only way they could survive would be to leave and go to a foreign land. And that they did along with their two sons. Years went by. The sons grew up and married Moabite women. Orpha was one of them, and Ruth the other. And then tragedy struck this family. Elimelech dies suddenly, as we can tell. And the two sons also die, leaving a mother-in-law and her two daughters-in-law to fend for themselves. The passage tells us, the story tells us in these four brief chapters that Things turned around back in Bethlehem. Things got better. And word spread from Bethlehem across that land to Moab. And Naomi realized that things were much more favorable in her homeland. And so she determined that she would go back home. But she pled with her daughters-in-law to remain in their own native land of Moab. She tried to reason with both of them, and both of them said no, and they traveled a certain distance with her on her journey back home to Bethlehem. And then she stopped again, and as forcefully as she could, she said, you need to go back to your own people. You need to go back to your own gods. Interesting. Little G-O-D-S. For they lived in a day and an age of rampant idolatry, and gods were behind almost everything that happened in that life. Orpha relented and turned and went back to live out the rest of her life with the promise of 
marrying again, perhaps, in her land of Moab. But Ruth would hear nothing of it. And it's Ruth in those words that we find in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, as she reasoned with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and said, I will not leave you. I'm going to go with you. She said those words that we've heard before. Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Then Ruth said, or Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came back to Bethlehem. Where do you hear those words? I don't, I don't know how long it took me to realize that this wasn't the wedding passage between a man and a woman that I'd heard at so many weddings. But it's the perfect passage to read at that time when two lives are joined together in marriage. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. And on and on the King James Version goes. It was some time later, I don't remember how old I was, that I was informed or realized that this was a commitment between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law, between two women. It was Ruth's promise, her commitment to taking care of Naomi. And you notice, if you look at it carefully, back there she said in verse 15, your sister-in-law, Ruth, has gone back to her land and to her gods, little g-o-d-s. But Ruth, when she gives her call of commitment, she says, your God Capital G in your translation, it should read. Your God will be my God. And Ruth had heard about the one true God. And she calls out the name and uses the title of God, the Lord God, as it's seen in the Old Testament. So her commitment is complete. It's complete in the routine of life. Notice she says... Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. A total commitment of oneself to the routine of life to protect and to join together with someone that you love. But it's beyond just the routine of life. Her complete commitment, her loyalty and her love, which reveal her true character. Her true commitment was not only in the routine of life, but it was also in her spiritual choices. Going back to, I will worship and I will love and I will accept the Lord God, your God that you have taught me. Christmas, in the middle of a journey from Moab to Bethlehem. Hang on to that thought. Because the story continues and tells us that Ruth and Naomi, as the passage said, made their journey back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, 
literally translated means house of bread. And this is all a thousand years before a baby would be born in a manger in Bethlehem. But we find Ruth as she heads back to a new land with her mother-in-law. She comes up with a plan to fulfill her commitment regarding how they would live out their lives. There in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed, she went, and she gleaned in the field behind the reapers. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to a man named Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Interesting turn of events. Here's Ruth. She's pledged her all, her total commitment to her mother-in-law. The only promise of that commitment is going to be whatever would befall Naomi. Most likely it would be simply the fact that she would live out a very hard life. She might have to sacrifice her own life. She was a foreigner coming back to a land where foreigners were not treated very nicely. Just as it is in our world today, it seems. But Ruth does the only thing she knows that she can do. She draws upon a custom. A custom that you'll find all the way back in the books of Moses. Where on more than one occasion, God in in commanding his people and the way they were to live, he said something this specific. He said, when it comes time for the harvest, don't harvest the corners of the field. And make sure and leave Enough so that those behind who are less fortunate, who are poor, who are desolate, who are orphaned, who have no means to take care of themselves to where they can have a livelihood, where they can pick up and glean from the field to provide for their own needs. This is what Ruth is depending upon. This is why she says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find some field where I can begin to glean and I am going To provide for us. But you notice in this passage, there are two groups mentioned. It says that Ruth went about to glean behind the reapers. What's the difference? This is a reaper right here. You take the stalks. They're chopped by hand. And you pick them up and you bind them into a a stalk, if you will, or several stalks. And you take these and they're heavy and they're big. And these are gathered and tied together. And then they are taken and taken to a cart or put upon the back of a donkey. And it's taken to the place where the grain will be separated from the stalk, where the threshing and the actual processing of the harvest will go on. But this is what happens When you reap. Gleaning, on the other hand, is something totally different. This is gleaning. You're following behind those that are 
gathering all of the grain and tie it into bundles. It's the, it's the harvest that belongs to the owner. But when you glean, you're able to follow behind and you're able to pick up those stalks that remain. Most of the time, these stalks were left there carelessly. It's simply because when you're reaping and you're in a hurry and you have a quota to fill, you gather as many as you can and you bundle them together and tie them and lay them down and go on to the next five or ten stalks that you can put together. But those who follow behind you are given the privilege and the right not to reap, not to harvest and gain as much as an owner would, but they're allowed to glean, to pick up that which is left behind. This is what Ruth was doing. Gleaners and reapers. It's in the midst of that that the narrative tells us that Ruth stumbled on and crossed some property lines and ended up in a field that belonged actually to her dead father-in-law, Elimelech, Elimelech's family, well-to-do apparently. And Boaz, who was a distant relative of Naomi's family, saw Ruth and immediately almost fell in love with her on the spot, as best I can tell, and inquired who she was and tried to determine where she had been and what she was doing, because it was evident she was not a Jew. She was dressed like a Gentile. Her speech pattern probably was different from that of a Jew. And her skin tone was different. So many giveaways. But she was one who was totally destitute. And therefore, she was trying to simply take advantage of the privilege of not reaping, not harvesting, but just simply gleaning what she could to stay alive. And it's there in chapter 2, verse 8. Boaz came and said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in any other field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay right here. A commitment to stay with a loved one. A commitment to not just acknowledge that loved one, but to live the life that that loved one would live. To worship that loved one's God. To become a follower. A follower of the Lord God. To start out and to branch out to create a new life with all the uncertainties that go with it, and with all the the things that are stacked against someone who would do this. But that did not deter Ruth. And she was willing to work, and she went to the field, and she gleaned, and she stumbled in to the property line of a distant relative, Boaz, who would become her redeemer, the Scripture says. He would become her husband. He would love her. He would protect her. But here, what is she doing? She's gleaning. She's gleaning in the field. Now, this is where I want to ask you to use your imagination with me. For I read this story and I take it at face value. I hope you do too. What happened here happened. I believe there was literally a a man named Boaz and there was a woman named Ruth. 
But I want you to take just a moment, and as we seek to take history and apply it to the way we live today, are we not the same? Are we not gleaning in God's field? Are we not given the the opportunity to follow along and to take those blessings bit by bit, whatever it is we can look for and whatever it is we can recognize and whatever it is we're courageous enough to pick up along the way? Isn't that not really how we live our lives? Are we not really so short-sighted much of the time that we never count on anything really big happening in our lives, much less God doing anything really big. We're just counting on the simple fact that someone along the way is going to let us glean. To think of reaping, to think of harvesting, to think of really pulling in the prophet never dawns upon us. We simply struggle along and we glean and we pick up the chance blessing, the favor Whatever it is we can find. Where are you doing that today is my question. Where are you looking for blessings? Are you focusing upon what this season will bring you this time perhaps? That maybe things will turn out a little bit differently. That maybe this time you'll stumble along and glean a little bit better than you did before. Or are you counting upon the generosity of someone that you really shouldn't be concerned with at all? Are you depending and are you staking your, your life itself upon those things and those priorities that have proven time and time again to be worthless and empty and dangerous and destructive? But yet you keep gleaning. You keep just picking up what you can. You notice as we've gone through this brief passage today, my take has been it's Christmas. It's Christmas in a strange place. It's Christmas in Bethlehem. It's Christmas in the field of Boaz. And the reason I say that is because this Christmas, these sections I call Christmas because we have to come to grips with what this season really is all about and what it means. How do you spell it? How do you spell Christmas? Some of us will spell it this way, G-I-F-T-S, gifts. And there's nothing wrong at all with gift-giving. It's a wonderful thing. It's a sign of generosity. But if that's the only way you spell Christmas, you've missed it. Others are going to look and they're going to say, well, I know how to spell Christmas. It's L-O-V-E. And I mean, how can you argue with Christmas being all about love? Because it is. But if we focus just simply upon love and we don't delineate it, we don't define it, and much less we don't practice it and understand what that love really means, loyalty and love and 
Ruth's mind was a total commitment of her life, no matter what would befall her mother-in-law. So to say that Christmas is simply spelled L-O-V-E misses the point as well. Others spell it B-I-R-T-H, birth. Because this is all about the birth of a Redeemer. And we talk about the coming of Jesus. We talk about all those words that describe who he is, Emmanuel, God with us. They're all about birth. They're all about new life. And yes, indeed, you can spell Christmas and pretty much get pretty close to its central meaning when you talk about birth. But really think about it. Think about the word itself, Christmas. You know where we get it? Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, that's a dead giveaway. But M-A-S, Christmas is where it comes from. The mass of Christ. And we borrow, not from another religious entity... That celebrate Mass day in and day out. But we simply take the word itself that has been passed on through generations, through centuries. And we have forgotten that the Christ Mass is built upon the word Mass. And the word Mass is defined as death. The Mass of Christ. The death of Christ. Folks, can you not... Can you not see it? Is it not becoming clear here? That the way we spell, the way we celebrate, the way we talk about Christmas, of all the things we want to do, hanging on to traditions and decorations and gifts and wrappings and all those things, which are fine and good as long as they're tamped down into their proper place. Because the real essence of Christmas is the Christ Mass, and it's all about His death. And you go, no. It's all about his birth. It's all about his birth that would eventually lead to the only thing that would save us, and that would be Christ's death. That's why Ruth stepped across a huge divide when she said, I will never leave you. I will never not follow you. Your God will be my God. I die when you die. I will be buried when I die. Everything we do, I do for you. So what was Ruth really making a promise concerning? Yes, it had a promise concerning life, but most important, it had death. There is no limit to my love. And there is no barrier too big to keep me from following after you. Now, do you see why Christmas is so important to a story like Ruth? We don't have anything mentioned. It's thousands of years. It's a thousand years, give or take, about a hundred or so, before Jesus is even born. But you turn to those genealogies of Jesus, and who are you going to find? You're going to find Boaz and Ruth, who became the ancestors of of the great King David who became the ultimate, the ultimate 
ancestor of the Christ. One final question. Notice that Boaz didn't want Ruth to spend her life gleaning. He wanted to give her everything. And he did. God doesn't want you and me to spend our whole lives gleaning. Even in his field. That's what we're doing. But it's leading us what? It's leading us to the real spirit of what this Christmas season is all about. And that is that God desires for us to become reapers. To gather it all. To enjoy it all. If we'll but trust Him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to read from your word, to sing praises to your name. And thank you for the opportunity we have today to make choices, to respond to your love. Father, help us to step out, to obey you in every area of life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we conclude each and every time we gather here to worship, we offer an opportunity for choices. Where you see, God never speaks without giving you and me an opportunity to respond to Him. And so we offer that as we conclude this hour. could be that you're here today and you have never said yes to Jesus. You have never trusted Him. You have never trusted, not in the baby born in a manger, but in the suffering servant who died upon a cross. Because remember... That's what this Christ Mass is all about. It's beginning with His birth and pointing to His eventual sacrifice. And His claim upon your life and mine is that we must receive Him and trust Him and love Him and follow Him. If that's a choice that you want to make, we'll have ministers and deacons standing here to counsel and to pray with you. Come forward. If you're here today and you know the Lord and hadn't told anyone, tell us. Step out and profess your faith in Christ. Maybe you know him, but have never followed him in believer's baptism. Maybe you don't understand what that symbol is all about. Let's talk about it. Let's find a time when you can experience that identification with Jesus that he commands all of us who believe in him to experience. A church to call your own. Church to, a church not just to glean in, but a church in which you can understand that God wants to give us everything. Everything that will help our spiritual connection with Him. To reap together. To gather the harvest together. You join a church by coming forward. And if that's the desire of your life today, we invite you to do just that. And then for most of us, whatever it is in this holiday season that either draws us or turns us away from what we really need to do, face it. Take the story of a young woman who learned what it meant to glean and to find favor and to reap. And trust that, that reaction that we should have when we hear a story like that, to follow in that example. So whatever that means for you, whatever obedience is required, 
don't leave here today without stepping forward and making that choice. That's our invitation. We stand together. We wait for you as we stand and sing. Won't you step out as God leads right now?